Hi there, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2019 and to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, have got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just lived really interesting lives. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How they picked themselves up when things didn't go right? and how their mentors, motivations, and mistakes have led them to achieve the things they have. Now, my only experience, in inverted commas, of trauma surgery comes from a misspent youth watching George Clooney and Noah Wiley in ER, and a misspent 20s watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy. I'm pretty sure that neither of those shows, absolutely excellent entertainment though they are, probably represent the life of a surgeon, a wife, and a mother that accurately. For a start, there absolutely cannot be that many good-looking doctors in one hospital. So I was really excited to meet this week's guest for a chat. Dr. Jamie Jones-Coleman is a trauma and acute care surgeon at Denver Health and Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Colorado Medical School in Denver. As if that wasn't quite enough, she's a writer and contributor for the HuffPost, for Forbes and for US News, and her blog has a readership of over 2 million people. She talks freely about the pressures of being a working mother, her desire to be a surgeon and how she sustains that, and about burnout in the medical profession. This is one of the longest and most extensive interviews I've done so far, so this episode is a little longer than usual. But Jamie speaks so eloquently about the topics mentioned that I thought you'd want to hear it all. Jamie was in London teaching surgeons over here techniques for trauma surgery at the time that we spoke. We wandered off into a pretty gritty discussion before we started recording about the rise in knife crime in London, the problems with gun violence in the US, and the statistics associated with both. Some of it was pretty graphic, but Jamie told me that in one night in a big Chicago hospital, they had recently treated 230 gunshot wounds, and that there's definitely a reason that the phrase, bring a gun to a knife fight, exists. If you get stabbed in the abdomen with a knife, which sounds pretty bad to me, There's actually only a 50% likelihood that you'll require surgery by Jamie or one of her colleagues. If you get shot in the abdomen, it's a whole different story. And, you know, it's one of the things that people bring up in the States when we start talking about legislating guns better. You know, injuries all occur because of velocity. It's all energy transfer. You know, if you get shot in the abdomen with a clear hole in your abdomen, basically 100% of the time that you're going to have something that I need to fix. So, it, you know, it's different. It's still a problem um, that, yes, you know, needs to be improved really everywhere in the States, obviously, in particular. Um, but the, it, it's different. It's definitely the type of injuries you see with guns is on a different magnitude from that from a knife. So would that make up quite a big uh, proportion of your of your work gunshot injuries or is is that like what sort of dominance does that play in your kind of daily practice it definitely does um how we structure what it is to be a trauma surgeon in the united states is something pretty different from here in the states the icu and the trauma is done by a surgeon and again every place is different um where i am now at denver health which is a large public hospital, uh, well-known in the States as a trauma hospital, quote unquote, you know, we have enough volume that, um, yes, we stay very busy with that. After quite a punchy opening to the conversation, 
Jamie and I then wound back to the beginning. I asked her where her interest in surgery came from, when she knew that she wanted to be a doctor, and how she started forging a path down that road. You know, I was very fortunate. Um, Education in my family has always been a huge priority. Um, And with that, my family has a very large science background. So my grandmother, for instance, was a microbiologist. Okay, wow. Yeah, she wanted to be a physician, but back in the 1940s in the U.S., that really was not common slash extremely rare. And so her parents at that time, you know, said that ladies don't become doctors. So she did what she thought of as the next best thing and became a microbiologist. My father is a nuclear engineer wow. and lots of, en- yeah. yeah, lots of engineers in my family. So the sciences have always been appealing to me and figuring out how things work and why things work. And I've always said that being a surgeon is really, uh, I always make a joke about being an overpaid plumber. <laughs> um, but it really is kind of the engineering sort of mind background to the fact that it's it's what I do today, which is I tell everyone I fix holes. That's all I do. They might be anywhere. <laughs> they might be in the heart or the lungs or the liver or the intestines, but I you know, I fix holes. Yeah. Um, it's good, good analogy to being a, being a plumber, you know, you're kind of looking for leaks, plugging them up and fixing them. Yeah. You know, it's I, like I said, my family was very, um, had a large, put a large priority on education. And I actually went to an all girls school, um, okay. in high school. So before university. And I think that really also helped shape me in the sense that of course the class president was a female, right. And of course, all the leaders were in leadership positions were filled by females because I was in an all female school, but it really, it meant that nothing was off limits, no position, no role. So you just see other people around you succeeding all the time as well. Right. No title was off limits just because I was a female, because I'd seen females hold every title possible. And yeah, so I mean, with the kind of science background, always loved it. I always thought about becoming a physician. I definitely went to medical school to be a surgeon. It was surgery or bust. It was surgery or nothing else. And it's been that way ever since. And, you know, when people ask me what else I would do in medicine outside of surgery, the answer is nothing. Uh, Surgery is what appeals to me. And again, I think really when you look at yourselves, and I think that's one of the big things as women is, you know, looking at ourselves and saying, okay, what am I good at? What am I not good at? And not outlining what I'm not good at in order to feel bad about myself or beat up on myself, but more to say, you know, how can I best make an impact? How can I best, you know, help? And for me, that's definitely being a surgeon. And do you have any thoughts on why more women aren't drawn into surgery? Because it's definitely like, I presume the US is the same as here that, you know, the numbers are growing, but still small. And it has this definite kind of alpha male kind of demographic (laughs) and, and um, reputation around it. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? You know, surgery has, like you stated before, surgery has been a all male sport for a long time. And 
over the past, obviously, several years, that's turned into a mostly male sport um, as women have started to enter the field. I think that women aren't in the field as often as men for a variety of reasons. I think one is obviously the reputation. You know, sometimes reputation really does matter. And I think it can be intimidating to women, especially if they don't have females that they can see above them having successfully navigated those waters. And I think I was also very fortunate in that in medical school, I had female trauma surgeons in residency and training in Chicago and in Atlanta. Same. I had at least one female trauma surgeon throughout my entire, you know, uh, 11 years (laughs) of getting um, through training. And I think that was definitely helpful because, again, as much as people want to say yes or no, when you see someone who looks like you, in other words, when you see someone who's gone through it, who's married or who has children and you see them successfully navigating it, you it makes everything so it makes everything possible. It makes everything seem like almost no big deal. And I think that a lot of women haven't had that opportunity And so I think it's, again, it's kind of one of those cycles we just have to break in the sense that female trainees go through surgery. They see this kind of male dominated field. I think that they can feel intimidated. And then when they don't see women doing the job, then it's, it almost becomes a subconscious subliminal message that you, that women can't do it. And that's far from the truth. Um, but yes, I think we're we're improving on it, but we still have a long way to go. Um, and you've obviously mentioned that you've had uh, role models along the way. Um, have you? You've obviously been mentored by some pretty special female trauma surgeons who've helped you. Um, do, are you now kind of passing that on to the next generation with what you do? Like, do you specifically mentor female surgeons coming through, or you know, it's not a defined program, but yes, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, male colleagues come up to me and say, Hey, you know, I've got a female resident who's really interested in trauma. Is it okay if they speak to you? Or Mm -hmm. another one of my colleagues wanted me to speak to his daughter who was contemplating medical school. Even here in the UK, I've talked to female registrars and uh, a female fellow, in fact, about, you know, that was specifically arranged, you know, by their mentors to give them a different perspective on things to show that, yes, as a woman, you can absolutely do this. Yes, it's long hours. Yes, it's long years. But if it's what you want to do, and this is how your strengths line up to where this is the field for you, then it's absolutely something that not only can be done, but should be done. Should be done, yeah. And you've obviously mentioned about motherhood. You've got, have you got two children or one children, one child? I do. I have two boys. Two boys. Aged six and two. Oh, cute. Um, but obviously you work, you know, kind of unusual hours, long hours, as you've said, and um, pretty unsociable hours, I should imagine. Um, yes. How do you do the juggle? Like, how does that work on a weekly basis for you? But, you know, obviously you're in the UK at the moment and you're traveling quite a lot. How do you balance that in your life or attempt to balance, should I say, perhaps? 
Yeah, no, you know, I, I think the I think a couple things. I think one is maintaining a certain perspective in the sense that it's not a balance, right? And we know this. And but I think we keep telling ourselves that in the sense that then work and life are compete are competing for each other instead of work and life work is part of my life. And I don't stop becoming a mom when I'm at the hospital. You know, I still get the phone calls for the, I can't find the X, you know, I can't find the back. Where is this? When is so-and-so supposed to be here? Right. You know, and trying to operate and you're like, I'm taking the spleen out. I'll call you right back (laughs) Um, or figure it out, you know? Um, And I think every mom whether you work in or outside of the home, we all have that, right? Whether you're putting together a big presentation, you're traveling for work, being a mom doesn't stop. So, you know, saying that it's a balance and that then if I'm at work, that means I'm not a mom. That's just, I can't even say the word that I want to say for it. Podcast but um, is fine. <laughs> yeah, that's bullshit, right? I mean, it's crap. Like we know as moms that it does not stop. So why are we then telling ourselves that we're not moms when we're not in the house? That's silly. And so I think one is maintaining that perspective that I know I'm a better mom for being a surgeon in the sense that being a surgeon fulfills me. And this goes for women, whether they have hobbies that fulfill them, whether it's a job or a career that fulfills them, that makes you a better mother because it makes you a happier person. And in addition to that, I also truly believe I'm a better surgeon because I'm a mom. Oh, that's a cool, that's interesting. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I think, um, I think, you know, moms, we speak our own language, right? You know, and it starts so young that you see a fellow mom whether it's, you know, in the grocery store or somewhere else and, you know, she's struggling with something, you just make that eye contact. You're like, girlfriend, I have been there. I feel you. <laughs> Hang in here. You it's, got this. It's going like, to be okay. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Right? Like we've all seen that, whether it's someone we know or someone we don't know, whether they're on the verge of tears, on the verge of hysteria, whatever it is, this is a language that moms speak. And when I'm talking to a mom in particular, um, about her child that is injured or has died. It is, you know, and it's nothing against dads. It's not, I mean, my husband's amazing. My husband's like the most amazing husband and father. Like my boys adore him. But I do think as women, I think our communal nature, um, speaks to us and we speak to each other in a different way. And, I think it adds a level of depth um, that I'm grateful for. So one of the books I read um, recently, I don't know if you've um, come across it, was um, there's an English neurosurgeon called Henry Marsh that wrote a book um, called Do No Harm, which is about his career in neurosurgery. And one of the things he talks about in that is about coping with your failures. And I was just a bit intrigued, you know, when – obviously neurosurgery, trauma surgery, when you have failures, however, whether, you know, whether that's a mistake or not, or whether just somebody doesn't live. I was just wondering how you, how do you 
leave that behind or do you not or how do you cope with with the failures that inevitably in your job are have have very extensive and big consequences I guess yeah that's a great question you know I think you you really phrased it well when you said cope with you know when people ask me what it's like to be a trauma surgeon in the U.S. I always kind of give them three little things I say you know think back to the hardest thing you've ever had to tell somebody you know, whether it was, will you marry me? Or, you know, I quit my job or, you know, I want a divorce or, you know, whichever, you know, think back to that moment and then think back to how you felt in terms of, were you nauseated, stomach fluttering, heart beating, heart racing, sweating. And so imagine doing that all the time. (laughs) You know, when you, when you tell someone that their loved one, parent, child, spouse has died. Um, and like you said, you know, every death, regardless of whether you could have fixed it or not, right? Because the, the, the brain knows. I mean, there are times we've gotten so good these days with getting trauma patients to the hospital that patients that never would have made it to the hospital you know, 15, 20 years ago are now making it. And so we have non-survivable injuries um, that come, but once you lay your hands on them, every death leaves its mark. Um, sometimes small, sometimes big, um, but it happens. And so you're already feeling that. And then to go and express to the family and it's, you know, I try to explain it, but it's it's the hardest moment. You walk into a room and these people are looking at you and you already know the answer, right? And they're looking at you with such hope and such sometimes almost happiness to see you. And there's 30 or 45 seconds before you tell them as you're walking in and you feel their eyes on you. It's hard it sounds hard like your description is so eloquent Jamie but it sounds so tough and to do that day after day after day after day you know you can see how that takes its toll on people because that is extraordinarily tough you know like when you are imparting bad news like that it's and yeah and I think so I always tell people you know that's that's one part of it I think the second thing is you know think I always tell everyone to think back to uh, a time, whether it was in university um, or you were moving or you traveled and you didn't sleep at all one night. Like you just, you pulled an all-nighter, whether it was moving or whatever the reason. And think about how you felt the next day. Were you cranky? (laughs) You know, were you off your game a little bit? And think about doing that at least twice a week for dozens of years. Um, and the third part I tell people is, you know, think back to the worst mistake you've ever made at your job. Like it was just, it was a horrible, like it wasn't, it was, it wasn't a small mistake. It was a mistake. Like you just messed up. And then imagine having to make a PowerPoint presentation on it and put it in 40 point font 
and blow it up on a big screen and talk about it in front of a hundred of your least favorite, you know, or most favorite colleagues. Like everyone in the company comes so that you can have this huge mea culpa, right? Well, we do that every week. So just to jump in here, these presentations that Jamie is talking about are called M&M rounds, which stands for morbidity and mortality. And we do them in the veterinary profession as well. It's basically where everyone sits down to look at why a death or an incident occurred, what happened, and what you can learn for next time. If it's a positive environment, it's a really good learning experience. But you have to put yourself out there. You have to examine your own failings if you've made them. And you have to trust that others will support you. Because at the end of the day, everyone is human and everyone, no matter who they are, makes mistakes. And, you know, the thing is about that is... I, you know, I joke all the time, like I have a relationship with failure, like failure and I were like frenemies being a surgeon and being a physician is tough. It's this, you have to maintain this kind of Goldilocks, perfect level of sensitivity because if you're too sensitive, you're not going to be able to help anyone else. There's no way because you're going to quit. And if you're not sensitive, then you'll never get better. And also you have, no, you have no compassion if you have no sensitivity either. Right. Well, and you'll never get better because in your head, you'll say that you never did anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it's one of those where, I don't know how much of, over here, but um, Captain Sully. So he's the captain of the plane that landed in the Hudson River. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a film with Tom Hanks about yeah. it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen yet. But it's interesting because at the end of it, he talks about what he could have done better. <laughs> yeah, despite the fact he's just saved an entire jumbo jet full of people. But that's how he saved a jumbo jet full of people is because he took every situation that ever happened to him up until that moment and he looked at it and said, how could I have done that better? So that's maintaining a sensitivity to say, I am not perfect. That's a, that's, that's, that's a fact. And when you accept that things can be done better, then you will become better. And I think that's where being a surgeon in America, being a trauma surgeon in America, you're definitely tired. <laughs> you're having <laughs> lots of tough conversations and you failure becomes your frenemy, you know, where you have this relationship with it, where you say, you know what failure. And I have a, a whole talk. I, I talk about big F, little F, you know, um, there's big failures and there's little failures, but you know, mistakes, failures, whatever word you want to use, those are going to happen. And that's okay. What's not okay is not learning from them. And so refusing to let failure be your friend where you're okay with it, you can never be okay with it. But learning to accept it, not as a destination, but as part of the journey. And that's okay. You know, our quote unquote mistakes or our failures can obviously be very visible. Um, but I think the thing I like to tell people is really going back to you, you have to go into every situation knowing that you should look back on it. You should perform hindsight and you should find what you could have done better because having that mindset is what keeps you growing and it's what keeps you getting better. And it also keeps you from being too sensitive about it. Cause if you go into this saying, I'm never going to fail, I am never going to I'm going to do things perfectly. Then when it happens, you're either going to reject it and say, well, that's not true and you'll never get better or you're going to accept it and you're going to fall apart. 
A little while ago, Jamie wrote an article for the HuffPost about the misconceptions surrounding working mums and stay-at-home mums and a perceived lack of understanding between the two groups. It's a humorous article, but the sentiment underlying it is that openness and communication will help women to support each other better. The media loves to play on a phony feud between those with children and those without, those who work and those who don't. We envy each other's virtual reality, she writes, which isn't reality at all. Women, whoever they are, have so much more in common than that which divides them. And we had a little talk about that. You know, and it's so frustrating because, you know, the whole thing, too, is and I think I wrote it in that article that talked about, you know, 50 years ago. And I'm not, I'm not sure about, you know, kind of the common words used here. But in the States, it was you were a housewife. Mm. Yeah, no, we, right? use that, we use that in the UK, too. Yeah, yeah. Housewife. Yeah, definitely. yeah. And, and, and we, we have now made everything about our children. <laughs> right. We we're not housewives anymore, which means we're not wives. We're not, you know, running a household. We have had children, right. Stay at home moms. And I think as women in general, I think that's harmful to us in the sense that it takes away who we are as people. It takes away who we are as individuals. And I don't care if you're a stay at home mother or working mom, but regardless, you have interests and you have hobbies and you have things that you enjoy doing and things that you don't enjoy doing. And when we start defining ourselves on whether or not we've had children and where we work, instead of looking at ourselves as individual people to see what are we good at again, what are we not good at? And that's where for me, it's a partnership. I absolutely, you know, when you'd asked me before about the logistics of kind of how I do things and, you know, I said the perspective is key, which is realizing that just because I'm at work doesn't mean I stop being a mom. And again, we all know that. But I think the second thing is, is, well, second thing is definitely outsourcing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm a huge believer in outsourcing in the sense of, if I tried to pay myself an hourly rate to do my own laundry, right? It, it financially doesn't make sense. So, you know, I'll budget differently so that I have that time to spend with my children. Um, but I think the third thing is really embracing the sense of a village in the sense that I'm appreciative for that mom who is my son's teacher. I'm appreciative of that mom who's, you know, a Girl Scout troop leader, I don't have girls, but one of my former partners, his his wife is. And I was so appreciative of her because I know that there had to have been moms. She was a stay-at-home mother. But I know there had to be moms to those little girls who didn't have the time, whose job wouldn't let them, you know, function in that role. So she's functioning as a Girl Scout leader so that these girls can participate in activities that without her they would not be able to. And so I think it's really just embracing this village aspect to it where – we're all adding something. And likewise, if if one of their children is sick or has to come to the hospital, then you're the person that completes that role in the village. Absolutely. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the things that I tell people all the time is like, you know, I may miss some of my son's soccer games. And this mom, meaning me, can definitely be upset about that. But there are lots of moms out there who are glad that I missed some of my son's soccer games so that I could be there for their son or their daughter. Yeah. It's 
And that's what this is about. It's about everyone having their place, isn't it? And absolutely. Yeah. We're in this together. Absolutely. So I tell women all the time. (laughs) I'm like, ladies, we are in this together. And you got to just band together on this and say, you know, hey, can you help me with this? I'll help you with this. And there definitely can, like you said, I think the media likes to play up on it. But I think there is some of, I don't know if competition is the right word, but, you know, some perceived friction. But I think all that comes back to insecurity. You know, women who feel like, well, I'm insecure because I'm not at home with my children. And I feel insecure because I am at home with my children. And we just have to let that go. Ain't nobody got time for that. Like, I just, I just don't. Like, and every, every mom knows this. Every mom knows this. We all need an extra hour in the day. Yeah. Everybody, I mean, I don't have children and I feel like I need an extra two hours in the day, let alone if you have kids on top. <laughs> right. Whether you have, well, like I said, whether you have children or not, I think we all need extra time in the day. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why would I even spend time contemplating, thinking, acting like that? It's just, there's just no time. Yeah, sure. So how would your um, average week pan out, Jamie? Like oh. what, if, if there is such a thing, how does that all fit together in your kind of schedule? Yeah, so my schedule <laughs> is, uh, I know, and, and I laugh every time I say it, because I say it, and when you say schedule, it implies some sort of logic, some sort of order, <laughs> some sort of sense, um, and it's not um, at all. So, you know, my weeks can range, um, you know, up to 100 hours in the hospital in a week. Jeez, wow. Um Um, but then, you know, but then there are weeks that it's more like, you know, 40 to 50. So on average, if you actually look at trauma surgeons across the United States, um, if I'm remembering my data correctly, we average almost 70 hours a week average. It's a lot. Um, and again, that's one of the things that I think is intimidating to women. I think for me though, I see it as, and we know this, that trauma surgeons are at a national shortage in the United States. And it's a math problem. You know, I'm at a the highest level uh, trauma center here, you guys. I think we refer to them as MTCs. And so we actually have to be in the hospital. And so that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Multiply that by how many centers require a surgeon inside the hospital for that. And there's just only so many of us. So it's good. You know, overall, I will say, where I am now, I'm at uh, Denver Health and um, the Department of Surgery there. It's such an amazing partnership. And about half have older children that aren't, you know, not that are like college, you know, age. And then the other half have younger kids. And so it's a matter of pitching in and pulling for each other. Yeah, covering for each other. And also, too, it's learning that, hey, listen, you know, I just worked in one week, what some people might work in an entire month. So, you know, go take a random Wednesday and be healthy, you know. So I have a great boss who has a wonderful um, kind of mindset about that, um, that understands that we work hard. That's very refreshing. And I mean, um, you, you know, what is it about, you know, you say some weeks you'll work 100 hours, that to a certain proportion, maybe most of the population would be um, unthinkable and probably 
pretty awful at the job that they do. You know, there's a lot of people in the world who, if you said you have to spend 100 hours a week doing your job, would be just mortified by that. Um, What is it about your job that keeps you thrilled, I suppose, and keeps you fresh? Because that presumably there is a degree of burnout from people who fall out of love with that career and that job. Um, So how do you how do you stay excited by by that to allow you to put the commitment and the hours in, Jamie? No, it's a great question because it is true. Trauma surgeons in the United States do have a very high level of burnout. Um, well, I have to say, I'm, I am not surprised right. <laughs> with, no, you know, with the number of hours that you're there, I guess. Well, the hundred hours are not, you know, that's not every single week. No, sure, sure. But, but does it happen? You know, it doesn't just happen once a year either. Let me put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think part of it, again, goes back to perspective in the sense that what we do is so important. It's so important. You know, in the United States, the leading cause of death up to the age of 44 is trauma. And I want someone there for my kids. Right. And I want someone there who has been trained the way that I've been trained. I want someone there who has the experience that I have, if not more. I think that's a big part of it. I think another part of it is keeping it fun at work. You know, what we do, what we do, I, we know is stressful, especially for surgery. Um, they've even done studies looking at heart rates of surgeons during operations. And even if surgeons didn't report themselves as feeling stressed, heart rate went up, heart rate variability, which is a marker of stress, also showed that it's stressful. And it's more stressful. And it's interesting. Actually, one study looked at surgeons and anesthetists during the same case. Just <laughs> <laughs> we got more stressed. I like to tell my uh, anesthesia colleagues in the States that, you know, clearly, clearly surgeons were more stressed. Um, and that, you know, we, we should have picked anesthesia instead. Uh, <laughs> in, in veterinary, we refer to anesthesia as 95% boredom and 5% blind panic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I can see that. And so it's funny. Um, so we know that surgery is a different animal <laughs> um, from the rest of medicine. And then when you start adding on, especially when you look at trauma surgery again, So we know that surgery is stressful. We know that when a trauma patient comes into the emergency department, we know that that's stressful. That's been looked at. But then you're throwing sleep deprivation. For those of us who spend the night in the hospital or who are working 30 to 36 hours in a row, so then you're adding on sleep deprivation on top of a lot of physiologic stress coming both from emotional, mental, especially with trauma, right? I don't I'm making very quick decisions with very little information. Yeah. It's very different. And it's- oh. Right. And then, so there's a mental emotional component of making a, a lot of really big decisions with very little information, having tough conversations with families. And then the physical aspect too, where you're running around the hospital for, you know, 30 to 36 hours, you throw on some sleep deprivation. So you can see that it's a perfect recipe for burnout. Um, I think, it's a variety of things. I think one is definitely perspective, feeling that what I'm doing is purposeful um, and is important. 
I think secondly, I have an amazing support structure. My husband and I have been together 18 years um, since university and there's not a day that goes by that I don't thank God for him. I mean, he, he's my best friend. He pushes me. He challenges me sometimes about the toilet paper rolls, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you know, and, um, so I've got an amazing husband, but then I also have this amazing sisterhood of other surgeons. Um, some are trauma surgeons, some are trauma mamas, like we like to call each other. Um, where we have children and are in an academic, you know, professor type situation at busy trauma hospitals. And so I have the sisterhood, you know, that luckily my husband's with me so, so long now he could probably pass like a, a medical exam. I mean, he's <laughs> like, you know, everyone else like, how do you explain it? I'm like, no, I, I don't explain it. I just talk. And after 18 years of listening to it, <laughs> He can tell you all about the femoral artery, the subclavian artery, your vein. I mean, he's, he's all about it. It's great. Um, but also, you know, I pick up the phone and I call my girlfriends, you know, I, I, my tribe, you know, um, and I say, Hey, you know, this is what I encountered today, or this is what I'm struggling with. And it could be home stuff. It could be about my children. It could be about, you know, my nanny. It could be about uh, my husband. It could be about anything or it could be about work. But I think having that support system, and then I think the third thing is maintaining an identity outside of just being a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And that's where the writing for me, um, the creative outlet, I exercise four to five times a week. Um, keeping me, keeping Jamie, and having these components to it. Component of motherhood, component of being a wife, component of being a surgeon, um, having these components, but not letting one component take me over. In the UK and the EU, doctors are no longer allowed to work the kind of hours that Jamie does. And 100 hour weeks are, or by law should be at least, a thing of the past. It's an interesting dilemma. You only learn and gain experience and skill by being in the hospital, by seeing cases, by scrubbing in on surgeries and following your patients. So there's a theory that doctors in the US progress quicker and have better knowledge and skills sooner than their counterparts elsewhere. But there's also no doubt that sleep deprivation can have some pretty serious effects on both physical and mental health over time. And there is a question about whether it's safe for doctors to work those kinds of hours. You know, the hours thing, um, I get asked a lot about that, you know, quite frankly, um, I think we take excellent care of patients. I think the bigger question is, or the bigger statement in my mind is we're not taking excellent care of ourselves in the process. Right. Um, I think, which is part of what's leading towards burnout along with other, other things. It's not just hours. Um, but You know, I think that most places, most jobs, most bosses now are aware of this. And I'm hoping that we're changing some of the culture because that's the big difference. You know, if you're a pilot and you show up to work and you say, I'm tired, they're going to cancel your flight. Yeah, they'll tell you to go home. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, right. But but the but the real the real the real moment in that for me is the difference 
Now, granted, obviously, if they did that every day, they'd get fired. But, you know, like if this were, you know, someone who was an excellent pilot with a great record, you know, all it takes is for them to say that. And they, they're not going to have any backlash. Like the culture is accepting of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's where surgery, we have to work on some of our culture. Whereas, oh, you're, you're only doing 30 hours. <laughs> You know, you're not, you're not going to stay for another six. Like you're not going to do full 36 hours in a row. Like you're <laughs> such a wimp. Um, I think we're, I think we're combating some of that, but I think again, it's one of those, well, we did it. We've always done it. And I'm like, yep. And you're all on your third wives <laughs> and you know, unhappy and you know, like 30% of you drink too much and like another 30% you know, scream positive for depression. Okay. Yes. Physically we can do that. But the question is, should we? And I think, I think we're, we're starting, we still have some work to do, but I I think we're definitely starting. We're, we're improving upon that from a culture standpoint to be more accepting. It's not about proving that we can do it. It's about asking, should we be doing it? So just to touch on your writing there, you you just alluded to it. Um, you obviously had a very successful blog. Um, I read that you'd had over 2 million, 2 million readers for your blog. Is that right? That's yeah. incredible. Um, and that presumably, did that is that what led on to your opportunity to write for Huff, you write for the HuffPost, et cetera? How did that all come about and how did you start with all of that in the beginning? You know, it's funny. Um, so I was a history major. In university. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I know. No, right? It makes total sense. Obviously. Funny, I was, uh, I was at the British Museum today just like getting lost because I just loved it so much. It was, it's so beautiful. Um, anyways, and so um, I've always loved stories. That's all history is, right? It's just a story. And so I've always loved stories. I've always loved telling stories, whether it's verbally um, or writing. And so I was you know, trading some stories with one of my girlfriends and she's like, Oh, we should start a blog. I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Total, you know, kind of a throwaway idea, but she luckily, uh, is very organized. And so the next week she's like, here's our, here's our blog name. Here's your name. Here's my name. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, and so off it went. And so I, I wrote actually the first piece that really caught attention was a very tongue in cheek, uh, article about, why men should want to marry a woman, a woman physician. Right. And, um, I'm saying I actually wrote it. Like I literally, I'm on call in the hospital. I'm in the middle of like a 24 or 36 hour stretch or beginning actually a 36 hour stretch. I just sat down over like 15, 20 minutes. I just like jotted out and all of a sudden my phone starts going off. Like what is going on? So about 24 hours later, and 1 million views later. Wow. <laughs> no, it was crazy. Um, that's really what, you know, kind of helped um, launch the blog. And then, um, yeah, I got the attention of a Huffington Post editor. So I started contributing for them. Um, and then that got the attention of a Forbes uh, reporter, a contributor. So I did some things with her. And then I signed a contract with U.S. News and World Report and I've been writing for them for the past two years. Yeah. So it's just been, you know, kind of a great creative outlet that I think, again, goes back to preventing that burnout or, you know, at least being aware of myself enough to know that, hey, I can't just be a surgeon. 
And I can't just be a mom. I need to be Jamie. And some of that is working through some of the feelings and emotions that come with such a heavy job. Um, And some of it just comes through the fact that I like to be creative in some way. And this is my creative outlet. There is currently an increasing dropout rate amongst young doctors in both the US and the UK. Medical graduates are often high-flying, high-achieving young men and women. But if you aren't used to struggle and failure in your early life, the public nature of your mistakes and failures as a doctor and the significance of the consequences of those errors is going to hit you like a ton of bricks when you graduate. It's so important to encourage children to nurture and to develop them with love and with care. But at what point should you start learning the difficult lessons of failure? When is it okay for a young person, medical student or otherwise, to feel the sharp burn of consequence? You know, I will say we, we've talked about this a little bit with the, um, you know, the generation that's coming behind us where everyone got a trophy, you know, for showing up. And I do think we haven't prepared the generations well. Right. I mean, and I don't know exactly how it is here, but and, you know, there's like an award for like who colored the best, you know, like there's 50 awards. So every kid gets an award. I think what we're teaching our children is external validation. We need to be teaching them internal validation. How do you know that you are valuable? Let me help you learn about yourself. So that when times are hard, because they're going to get hard, you can still look in the mirror and say, I have value. Today was a shitty day. I have value. And that's where we're messing up. I, I think that we feel like that's what we're teaching when we give these awards and when we give these prizes and trophies for everything. And I don't think that's what we're teaching. I think what we're teaching is external validation is great and you need it. And that's what's going to prove to you that you are worth something and that you have value and that you have worth. But that's not what does it. We start looking at these things. People can't look at themselves and understand their value, not because of trophies or ribbons or anything that they can touch, but just knowing it by looking in the mirror. That's what I feel like we're missing with our children. I feel like we're, we're not preparing people. So like you said, um, they go through all this, right? They've gotten A's on everything or B's on everything. You know, they've gotten great grades because we don't fail anybody anymore and everybody passes and everybody's good. Yeah, everybody's a good person, but that doesn't mean that everybody's performance is the same. Otherwise, there would be no Olympics. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> and that's, that's, I think it's, that is a really vital concept is that, if you if your performance is not as good as it could be or should be, that doesn't necessarily mean that a it's always going to be like that. B that you yourself are a failure per se, or that you're a bad person. It's just that you had an off day in one way or another. Yes, performance and uh, value. A saying that we say a lot of times in medicine is true, true, and unrelated. <laughs> you know, in that. Um, I am a good surgeon. I can mess up. They're both true. One doesn't negate the other. And I think that's where we have to link who we are as people and yes, have high expectations for performance, for behavior, 
but understanding that performance doesn't equal value. And so placing value strictly on performance, again, I think we're setting up um, a generation of people who, like you said, are, are getting into their jobs, are getting into the professional world where you have to learn when you need to step it up. But needing to step it up doesn't mean you're not a good person. Needing to do better doesn't mean that you're not meant to be a vet. You're not meant to be a doctor. It may just mean that you need help with some things. And everybody needs help early on in their career because, you know, first of all, you just don't have the experience and and you can't experience. I found that very difficult when I was nearly graduated and, and a bit younger that in whatever aspect of life you're in, but particularly at work, you just don't know because you haven't seen it before. And that actually being able to say, well, I'm new to this and therefore I might need some experience, somebody with more experience to advise me about this. But that doesn't mean that I am bad at my job per se. It just means that occasionally you have to ask somebody who has seen it before and seen it all before and can say, yeah, that's fine. Or that's not fine or whatever. You know, and it, it's so funny about this too, because a lot of people, I think, struggle with this. So the, our textbook of trauma surgery um, was written by three men, uh, Drs. Moore Dr. Maddox, and Dr. Feliciano. Dr. Feliciano um, has been my mentor nine years. Um, And this is the man who literally wrote the book, who, when we got something unusual, he would pick up the phone and call some other very famous trauma surgeon in the country and be like, hey, what do you think of this? And so I think I had very good, physical, tangible reminders that you should be asking questions. Everyone should be asking questions, whether you've had five years experience, five days experience or 15 years experience. Yeah. Again, it's taking that perspective of saying I am confident and I am competent and I have questions. That's true, true and unrelated. You can be both competent and confident and have questions about things. Yeah. And should have questions about things. So, you know, I'm like, hey, the man who wrote the book needs to pick up a phone and phone a friend every once in a while, then I'm good. That's okay. Absolutely. Gives everyone else the absolute permission to do it too. Right. (laughs) As usual, I threw the floor open to Jamie at the end and asked if she had anything else she wanted to mention. No, I mean, this has been wonderful. this has been so enjoyable. You know, I think the the main thing is, is remembering that we are examples. Thinking back when we were little girls, how much we noticed about everybody and everything. And so I'm so proud of our generation and the generations before us who really set the stage for us and who now hopefully we're going to set the stage for them. That no matter what you look like, don't look like, it doesn't, you can do anything. It doesn't matter that your gender will never define what you're good at. Um, and I think the last thing for women of each other is we're in this together. I say that a lot, but it's true in the sense of if we all kept that mindset, 
there was a, when you talked about stay at home moms versus working moms, there was a very funny, uh, commercial that aired in the States and it kind of showed these moms, like these little packs of moms, you know, sniping at each other, um, about, you know, like, um, breastfeeding exclusively and, you know, I feed formula to my kids and, you know, all these things that we all, um, sometimes pick at each other about. And then it shows one of the baby carriages, uh, rolling down a hill. And, you know, all of a sudden now you have like a hundred women, right. Who were all verbally slapping each other, before, <laughs> um, running after this baby. And of course, saving it, you know, and it's like this moment afterwards, right? Where they're like, oh, wow. Okay, wait, we're in this together. But I think it's such an important statement because if we really acted like that all the time, if we really acted like, hey, we're in this together. And, you know, we already have enough people not rooting for us, right? For a variety of reasons. So we should absolutely be rooting for each other. And I think whether it's in friendships or personal relationships or professional relationships, um, I think women need to be supportive of each other. And that is actually probably a great sort of message to finish with is that actually women you know, women supporting women is the way that all women are going to go forward in their careers, whatever they do. And I think it's one of those, you know, we have to, it's okay to have high expectations of each other. You know, it's okay to push each other, but it's not okay to push each other down. Well said, Jamie. There's a brilliant quote from Madeleine Albright, who used to be the US Secretary of State, who said that there is a special place in hell for women who do not help other women. That's one of my commitments for the new year, to help other women as much as I can, to appreciate those around me and to give others a hand up along the way. As ever, if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, then do drop me a line at smashingtheceiling at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave a nice review on your favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, then spread the word, as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling, and we'll hopefully see you next week.